You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming back Dr. Kristen Lassiter to the show. Dr. Kristen is a reproductive psychiatrist, and she runs her own private practice out of Austin, Texas. And I have asked her to come back to talk about the connection between our reproductive hormones and our brain. Now, if you've been following me for some time, you know that it's no secret that postpartum is a high-risk time for onset of mental health challenges, whether it be anxiety, depression, or other disorders like, like psychosis or bipolar, OCD, things like that that can come up in the postpartum period. This can actually be related to the shifts in our reproductive hormones. There are other key times in our life or even monthly with our cycle where our hormones shift and it impacts or can have an impact on our mood. The research is starting to go there and we don't have all of the answers, but today Dr. Kristen and I really try to dig into and bring some understanding to the connection between the two and how they might impact one another. This is a really interesting, current research-based conversation to help us understand the impact of our hormones on our mood. So let's get ready to listen in on my conversation with Dr. Kristen. Before diving in, we're going to get to the iTunes review of the week. This review comes from Blonde Ravens Girl, and it's titled New Mom. I'm a brand new mom and I'm so thankful for this. I agree we need more care for moms after baby. I suffered terribly with postpartum depression and I didn't know what was going on at the time. And by my six-week checkup, I had already decided something was wrong. Thank you for your podcast. It made me feel like I was normal. Welcome to all the new moms out there and all of the newcomers to the podcast. I so appreciate when you leave an iTunes review to let me know if this has made an impact for you or not. It's one of my ways of hearing from you, getting your feedback as I kind of click upload and send this out into the universe. So I appreciate that you do that. Without further ado, let's hear my conversation with Dr. Kristen. And I also want to note that Dr. Kristen's been on the Happiest Mother podcast before to talk about medications in pregnancy and the postpartum period. So make sure to scroll back. And I mean, way back, all the way back to episode three to hear from Dr. Kristen and medications during pregnancy and postpartum. All right, let's hear my conversation with Dr. Kristen on hormones and mood. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us today. This is your second time on the Happy as a Mother podcast and it's just because I adore your brain and all the things that it keeps in there. So thank you so much for coming back and joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me again. I'm so excited. 
So the first time you were here, we were talking about the use of medications in pregnancy and postpartum. A really big topic, really important. I think that there's a lot of misguided advice around how we treat medications, especially in pregnancy, but also in breastfeeding and postpartum. So if you guys have questions about that, make sure to check out that episode and we'll link it in the show notes as well. Really informative. Today, we are here to unpack the relationship, I guess, between our reproductive hormones and how that impacts our brain and our neurotransmitters. And you had just recently done a really interesting series on this on your Instagram page. And off air just a moment ago, we were talking about how we both have just like a fascination with understanding this. How is this a part of like your reproductive psychiatry training? Is this like a really personal interest because of the like clientele you work with? Or how did you come to discover or learn so much about this area? That's actually a great question because I didn't learn about it until I did my reproductive psychiatry training, which looking back at it, I'm like, you think that that would be something that would be incorporated into medical knowledge in general, or at least general psychiatry knowledge, but it wasn't. So I didn't learn about it till my third year of residency training. And it was because the attending that I had, who I was training under, had a book that she wanted me to read. And it talked all about different hormones and how they interact with different neurotransmitters and how that affects our mood and mental health. So it was like mind boggling to me when I finally learned about it because I I didn't understand how this wasn't brought up before. Right. How is it not more, I guess, kind of common knowledge when we think about providers who work with women and we think about women and we know, statistically speaking, being at such high sort of probability or high risk for postpartum or anxiety, like depression or anxiety in postpartum, throughout menopause and these other really crucial stages of life. But until we're really niched down in this field, it's really not broad or general knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of something where people are like, oh, there's an association between mental illness arriving and, you know, this period in a woman's life, but nobody really kind of gets down to, well, why is there this association? And how is that later going to impact her future mental illness. Right. So I would love for us to go there and to unpack this relationship a little bit. And from what I understand in my limited spare time, but still very interested kind of knowledge and reading that I do, that there is a correlation. There is a relationship between the two. But according to research, from what I understand, it's still not clearly like super well-defined. Is that fair to say? That is very fair to say. It's still an area of very hot topic in terms of research, and we still don't have a great understanding of how these hormones particularly act with neurotransmitters in because it seems to be different in different areas of the brain. So it's still a lot to learn. Okay. So in terms of our reproductive hormones change in pregnancy and postpartum and also in menopause, our estrogen and those are reproductive hormones that are changing. Is there sort of a common thing that happens for people? Can we understand how that might impact our brain chemicals or what that relationship looks like a bit? In terms of pregnancy? Sure, let's do pregnancy. Yeah, so definitely they've uh, recently started doing more studies on how a woman's brain structure actually changes um, when she becomes pregnant. 
And it's thought to do a lot with progesterone and estrogen and the brain and how they kind of, I guess, coax different neurons to change and interact with each other differently. And if you think about it from, you know, a biological standpoint, I mean, it's probably good that our brain goes through this change because, you know, where we are before pregnancy versus where we are after in terms of, you know, our mental capacity to deal with a child is usually pretty different. And it's a, it's a huge transition that we go through both mentally, but also physically in our brain to prepare for, for being a mom and having all those, you know, different worries that come up that you, you know, never would have even thought of before, just so that you can make sure that you're baby's healthy and happy. And there is definitely a part of that, like you said, when we become a little bit, a little bit more hypervigilant or like more attuned, there is this sort of survival and adaptive piece of that. Right. And, and, and if those hormones, I guess, in those fluctuations and, and chemicals in our brain are all working sort of within average range, really adaptive and really protective for us in terms of taking care of a new little life. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that I hear from a lot of people that this is, you know, how distressing this feels when we're more in like the postpartum range or we're more in the depressive range where now these things feel outside of the norm and they don't feel as adaptive because we're like stuck on hypervigilant and we can't sleep or, you know, we're so low that we're having a hard time caring for baby or just feeling really like a failure. So these are often the times or the areas when we start to want to dig deeper and understand it more, right? Right. Yeah. I think a lot of women are kind of understanding that hormone changes in pregnancy are going to lead to them feeling different in pregnancy. And I I feel like that's pretty, for the most part, well known in our culture. But if you think about postpartum, it's still kind of this idea that, oh, you're supposed to be happy and, you know, it's all rainbows and butterflies. So when women start to feel that emotional, toll in terms of, you know, either feeling really anxious or feeling, you know, guilty or, you know, grieving the loss of their old life, they kind of get shocked by it and feel like, oh, this isn't what I'm supposed to be feeling right now or something's wrong with me. It's interesting how our expectations, I feel like, of motherhood play a big role in that adjustment as well. So when we think about hormones in pregnancy. I think that it's a good rule to put out there that they're supposed to change. We expect that they will change. It's adaptive and healthy for them to change, right? Right. Is there anything that you found according to research that helps us to just understand that more? Or if one hormone changes too much, does that impact mood? Or is there any kind of correlations or things to reveal there? So it doesn't seem to matter in terms of the levels of hormones. So everybody's body is a little bit different. There's, you know, obviously a range that your body's supposed to put progesterone at or estrogen at, but it doesn't really seem to matter like, oh, if somebody has this much progesterone, that means they're less likely to be depressed or, you know, it doesn't match up quite like that. Um, The levels of progesterone though, it's, it's interesting because they skyrocket so much in pregnancy that your brain actually has to adapt to that amount of progesterone. So if you were to give a woman that same amount of progesterone, you know, all of a sudden when she wasn't pregnant, she'd probably pass out. Like it's, it's just a, a ton of hormones and it acts on the same receptors that alcohol acts on. So if you can imagine, it kind of makes you feel more relaxed for some people, less pain, you know, maybe more forgetful. So those particular receptors are called GABA receptors. And then you think about later on in postpartum period when that's just 
ripped away, it's, you know, no wonder that we're all kind of discombobulated and, and more anxious and hypervigilant because, you know, progesterone that has been acting as kind of this soothing agent has just been ripped away and our brain kind of has to adjust all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. I was reading, I think it was in Karen Kleiman's, um, this isn't what I expected, I don't know, some postpartum book that I was reading about how our reproductive hormones are actually kind of like the catalyst or the system that acts as a bit of a regulator or control system for our neurotransmitters. Is it kind of that top-down directional in terms of reproductive hormones influence our transmitters, would you say? That's an excellent question. I actually don't I don't think that that's super well studied, but I think that yeah. if I had to categorize it, it would probably be that estrogen, progesterone kind of control more of our serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine and versus the other way around. So that could be, you know, supported by the fact that, you know, if somebody's going through depression or anxiety, it's not necessarily going to make their menstrual cycle change or, right. you know. Right. That sort of thing. I mean, it, it seems like there are some correlations. So when we're really mentally ill, it can affect our, you know, fertility or can affect our ability to, you know, have regular periods. But I think more likely it's the other way around. Yeah, that's how I had understood it. But it's also not so clear cut, right? So like, I'll get lots of questions about, well, is there like a test that I can take for anxiety or depression? And you know, it's a very, it's like a subjective questionnaire with your provider. It's not like a blood work test to test your thyroid to tell you what hormone is out in your body in terms of thyroids. And so I think that it's such a fascinating field of research trying to understand this correlation between our brain chemistry and our reproductive hormones. Because if we were to uncover something there, how life-changing would that be for women to really understand that? And it makes me think about even on a more monthly sort of pattern for women who might struggle with PMDD or really sort of severe PMS symptoms from like ovulation onward to when their cycle actually starts. And it really, like there is no denying the correlation or the connection between the two when we're seeing these types of patterns, right? Absolutely. And it, it doesn't even have to necessarily be unique to like PMDD, for example. So premenstrual dysphoric disorder in women who suffer from that, it's specifically that their hormones cause the mental illness. But in a lot of women, it's just that they have an underlying mental illness and the dysregularity or the changes in those hormone levels then exacerbate the symptoms that they they're going through at other times in the month. So if someone's depressed and they're struggling with depression and it's not you know, very well controlled on the medication they're on, or they're not all the way in remission in terms of, you know, therapy and medication, then those times that those hormone changes dysregulate things just enough where they start feeling those symptoms again, only during that period of time. Mm, So that's really interesting. mm -hmm. I never thought about it from that perspective that it's not necessarily that the hormones are causing, let's say the anxiety or depression, but that it's kind of underlying and maybe managed-ish for a part of the month, but that change in hormones or fluctuation kind of exacerbates or like increases or changes. Very fascinating because there's a whole line of questioning that I feel like this goes down in terms of, okay, like if there is this correlation between 
how our brain is functioning and our hormones. Does it have to be treated with medication or can we go to what we might think is a more root cause if, you know, if it is in fact very top down to treat these sorts of things on a hormonal level, right? And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. So it it really depends on like the origin of the mental illness. So like I was saying, if it's more of a underlying depression that would be there regardless of their hormone changes, then that's not going to necessarily get better with evening out hormones, so to speak. And when I say evening out hormones, I mean like taking birth control or taking something that's going to kind of suppress ovulation or suppress the way that your hormones naturally you know, fluctuate throughout the month. But if it's something that is mostly driven by hormones, so like PMDD, and is driven by those hormonal changes, then that's when we see that taking birth control or, or taking something that is going to make hormones stay the same level throughout the month usually helps. But surprisingly, the most effective, not surprisingly, but you know, kind of yeah. not intuitively, the most effective treatment and probably the safer treatment that we have for like PMDD is taking antidepressants. Yeah. And I've done quite a bit of research, like I say research, reading and studying type of research myself to understand this and what the treatment options are for clients who feel like this is something that they struggle with. And it really did come back to what I understood was either a low dose of an SSRI or antidepressant or a sort of cycling through every two weeks, like a low dose of like a Zoloft or Ciprolex or something along those lines. And so interesting that still that seems to be one of the more effective treatments, even though there is this sort of hormonal connection. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of people kind of have in their mind that, well, if I take hormones, it's, you know, it's natural. And so I'm treating it naturally. But in reality, taking hormones can have a lot of negative risk factors and and can be high risk kind of depending on the dose or what type of hormone you're taking. So, you know, in reality, when you're kind of comparing the two in general, it's, you know, antidepressants like SSRIs and have been around forever and that you're taking at a low dose um, are very safe to take. Right. And what, I don't know, what is in the driver's seat of some of that decision-making? Yes. I, I know that a lot of us want to try and understand why and get to the core And I also know that with clients, a lot of the conversations I have are around the stigma of being on a medication. And it's almost like we would rather find any or all or try this whole, you know, series of natural remedies or, you know, lifestyle remedies are a part of therapy and a part of what I teach in terms of nests, which is our like nutrition and exercise, sleep, time for self-support, these types of things. But if those are not moving the needle in terms of how our mood is or how our anxiety is, then we up the ante in terms of what our treatment plan looks like. Yeah, I just find that there is a often wanting to find alternative methods of treating our mood and anxiety. Yeah, I think it comes down to stigma. You know, our culture is think about like treating high blood pressure or treating high cholesterol. You know, we're much more okay with taking blood pressure medication than we are with taking an antidepressant or telling people that we're being treated with this medication, even though both can be treated with lifestyle changes. Um, but sometimes that's, you know, not enough. And sometimes your body needs medication and 
And just because it's your brain needing the medication versus your cardiovascular system needing the medication, in reality, it doesn't matter. But in, in our culture, it's kind of like, oh, no, I'm, I'm good. I don't yeah. need that. Yeah. It makes me think about, you had mentioned birth control in terms of like PMDD and controlling hormones and things. And it makes me think about sort of the inverse that I, I've heard with a lot of clients that happens where they were on a birth control or they're in the postpartum period and they go on a birth control and it actually has a negative impact on their mood. Yeah. Um, is that something that you see often in practice or is there anything to unpack there at all? Yeah, it tends to be related more towards the type of hormone. So in particular, you know, for reasons we don't quite understand yet, some women will be more sensitive to certain hormones that they take and that can dysregulate their mood. It seems to be more of a particular type of progesterone that's also found in like IUDs. So for some women getting an IUD, you know, which a lot of women end up doing postpartum might be increasing their risk for postpartum depression or, you know, increasing their risk for having some depressive symptoms. Interesting. And I don't know that that is necessarily talked about or, you know, women being educated in terms of, okay, these are some of the risk factors to be mindful of. Like we're talking about the side effects and the risks of inserting an IUD, like yes, liability check, you know, but are we really educated in terms of these are some of the signs and symptoms to keep on the lookout for when you get your IUD because you're in a high risk period. And I just don't know that those conversations happen and maybe are even something that I could additionally add to my own screening in my own practice when I think about making some of those connections for people. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's something that I hear a lot of feedback about from a lot of my patients who have noticed that correlation, um, such as like when they start taking the mini pill or the progesterone only pill, some women notice that makes them feel horrible and they feel upset. Their provider didn't warn them that this could be one of the side effects. But I think that's just something that isn't talked about and it's not really taught in our medical training. And so, yeah, it would, it would be beneficial for everyone to learn more about it. Yeah. So in the postpartum period, we know that that progesterone, like we talked about, really crashes and that's where those baby blues come in, right? And then in terms of hormones or things fluctuating or anything to be on the lookout for, is there anything to kind of add to the postpartum period here in this conversation, do you think? You know, it's really interesting that, and this is completely anecdotal, but from what I've seen with my patients, it seems that anxiety is what usually comes first in terms of if we have a timeline of somebody's going to experience postpartum anxiety or somebody's going to experience postpartum depression, it seems that anxiety um, classically kind of shows up in those first one to two days. At least that's what I hear over and over again from my patients. Whereas depression, it seems to be later on, you know, like two months in or so, you know, I don't know that we have a good understanding of why that is, but I think it has a lot to do with our hormonal changes that are going on postpartum. And to your point of like hormones being used. So there, there is a newer medication on the market that is specifically a type of progesterone that acts in our brain. And when it's given at insanely high doses, so like, again, we're talking about those high doses that can even make you pass out. It can make women feel better almost immediately. Wow. Okay. And so this is something that's being rolled out as more of a postpartum treatment or? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like, I wonder, you know, this is just sort of my analytical mind, like, 
would we be opting more for that over an antidepressant because that, you know, has less stigma, but it sounds like there's large risks potentially, or I don't know, associated, but. Yeah, it's risky in that you have to be in a facility where they can monitor you the whole time you're getting the treatment and it's an IV infusion. Oh, wow. Um, So they have to kind of watch you the whole time and make sure that, you know, you don't pass out or if you do, they have to stop the medication. But in terms of long-term risks, you know, it just hasn't been around long enough for us to know what are the long-term risks. So I think it just came out like earlier this year or last year for the public. And so we still don't even know like how, how long do the effects last? Is it something that, you know, you get one time and then you're good for the rest of of your postpartum period, or is it only going to last a few weeks and then you start feeling bad again? So still a lot to learn with mm-hmm. with those types of medications. And I, I get asked a lot, like, well, if I just take progesterone postpartum, will that make me feel better? Or, you know, wow. people will test your hormone levels postpartum and, and tell you they're low. But in reality, they're supposed to be low, your, your postpartum, that's part of, of what goes on. And taking okay. like, regular progesterone in in terms of like a supplemental form hasn't been shown to help with postpartum mental illness at all. And if anything, it could actually increase your risk for other things like stroke or, you know, some some of the scarier things. It's interesting. And I'll share a little bit of a personal experience and story about some of the interest in this. Like since being postpartum, I wanted to go to my naturopath just to have like a whole hormone thing. They were testing like some PCOS things and just I'm querying a few things. And there is sort of a cyclical kind of, it's not, it's not actually PMDD, but it's a, like a very, you know, brain fogginess that comes for me from ovulation to period. And for someone who's really A-type, a brain fogginess slows me down quite a bit, not as optimal as I would like it to be. So sort of testing hormones and seeing kind of what might be going on there and playing with the idea of a progesterone topical cream because estrogen and progesterone being like within the normal sort of bell curve, but on the suboptimal kind of end. And there's just this interesting, I don't know, it's so fascinating to me. It's not something that I've tried yet, so I can't speak to whether that's helpful or not. But there are so many of these alternate sort of treatments. And I guess one of the things that I have a hard time with, I, I love being empowered in our health and being able to, you know, try the things, do all of the things that we feel like are nutritious for our body and and whatever. But one of the, I think the things that I struggle with in working with clients is that there seems to be a sense when so many clients come to me that they have tried all of the things. They, they've tried so many things to try to get better themselves. There is a responsibility that they carry, that they have to will themselves to get better. And this becomes a really hard line and finicky line to walk because there are times when we can make changes within our lifestyle and it's helpful, but then there are times when it is beyond us, right? Right. Um, And I find that that is a really kind of slippery slope when we're being like kind of sold these alternative or all these alternate medicines and things to try I don't know. At what point do we kind of understand that it might be about ourselves, you know? Yeah, it's it's a tough thing to wrap your head around because I think going back to like the high blood pressure thing, like there's there's part of it that is in our control, right? There's there's part of it that we can do something about to try and make our symptoms better. That piece of it though doesn't necessarily 
you go back to like our biological risk for that even happening, right? So there's there's mm-hmm. kind of this, you know, already genetic or, you know, epigenetic or biological thing that's going on that predisposes you to having mental illness or, or makes it easier for you to feel worse when you're stressed out or when your hormones are changing. But, you know, it's not anything we can control. So it might be that you have to be more strict Mm -hmm. on your sleep than other people are, or, you know, you can't, you know, go and eat whatever you want and and still feel great the next day. But then, then there's people who, you know, they can do all the things perfectly and it's still not enough to help them help their brain be completely healthy. And that's not any fault of our own. It's, it's kind of how we're made up and, and just the hand that we were dealt. especially in that postpartum period where so much is outside of our control, our pregnancy and what may or may not happen in our pregnancy, our birth story and birth experience, how baby feeds, how they latch or don't latch, like grief over feeding, like so many pieces that are outside of our control. So I think that like control is such a relevant conversation to have here because if I see a client that comes in and is really doing everything that they can within their control, I'm like, you know, you're doing everything. I see you're doing everything and we can validate that. And then, yeah. And then there's this other piece of control where it feels like a loss of control over our body and to, to admit or like take a medication feels like a, I don't know, like a defeat or there's like a grief sometimes that comes with that from clients yeah. that I work with, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people kind of, like internalize it, like, well, I didn't do enough, or I, you know, didn't work hard enough at feeling better, or, you know, somehow blaming it on themselves. But yeah, like you mentioned, it's, you know, something that's not in our control, just like this pandemic happening, you know, a lot of, a lot of people have suffered from more mental illness during this time. And it's not anything we can control. It's just another thing that can happen in life that creates a bunch of stress, and especially when we're postpartum, we're, we're more prone to that stress causing mental illness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One question I get asked a lot is about weaning um, and hormones and mood changes and stuff. Is that something that you see in your clinical practice as a, as a bit of a trigger for relapses and whether it's postpartum depression or anxiety? Interestingly, I have not seen that, but in like two patients, but I I hear about other people experiencing that and it's talked about on, you know, listservs that I'm a part of. Um, So I know it happens. I think then it's rare and it does happen. And I think it's probably less likely to happen to women who are taking medication. So a lot of the women that I treat are on medication um, or, you know, they're, they're being pretty vigilant in terms of other treatment, like you know, different supplements or, you know, doing therapy really regularly. And so it doesn't seem like it happens to my small patient population, but it's, right. it's definitely a well-documented thing in, in research and, and among clinicians. Yeah, I hear that as well. And, and my response to that is often like, I know that our hormones are changing. It makes sense that we would have a fluctuation in mood or anxiety to how long that happens for or what that looks like, I feel like is really unique to the individual. 
and is unique to the amount of time we take to taper off and wean because that looks different for every person too. Like I know that I weaned over the course of like a month and a half or something versus some people who just wean within a day or two. So I feel like there are lots of variables there. But if I do have a client who is anxious about that, we could come up with a little bit of a I say safety plan, but not in like the crisis type of way in a way that we're, you know, being mindful and staying within our capacity, prioritizing sleep, these types of things. So that should something pop up, we're well equipped to manage it. Yeah, I think that's so important being being kind to yourself and and understanding with yourself when like you're weaning breastfeeding or, you know, it's you're in your luteal phase of your menstrual cycle or you're pregnant or you're postpartum, knowing that all these hormonal changes are going on and those are going to make you feel different than kind of your normal self and and being able to kind of let that go and not feel like a failure or not feel like something's wrong with you. Just knowing like, oh yeah, my my hormones are changing. I'm feeling much crankier today or, you know, I'm not feeling I'm like trying doing anything. To that I can't I need to accept my brain fog. <laughs> And it's so funny because it does come back to control. Like I'm very much like, how do I like optimize and get stuff done, you know? And Mm -hmm. I've had to, it's been a lesson in capacity for me. Motherhood in general is a big lesson in that. And then especially in the postpartum period or in these like cyclical hormonal differences as well has been something that has caused me to just have to attune to my body and give myself grace and compassion on days when I'm just not maybe as clear and can't write or create in the way that I expect myself to produce that day or whatever. Right. And being able to remind yourself like, this is just a time that's, you know, not permanent. It's just here temporarily. It's not, you know, I'm not going to feel the way this way the rest of my life. It's just today or, you know, this week. Right. Um, Kind of being able to remind yourself it's temporary is helpful too. Yeah. And I think that's like when we're in the depths of like a a postpartum depression, that is something that's very hard to see, right? Especially as a new first-time mom, but even subsequently, but especially as a first-time mom who it's like, is this what motherhood is, Mm -hmm. right? It catches us really off guard. Like I remember my first experience as a mom, there's no, you lack like the perspective of how long things will last and how long the stages will last in the Mm -hmm. time around, you know? So it does feel sometimes like it will be prolonged forever, but I assure you, it won't always feel that way, right? Right. And I think that's, you know, part of the illness too, in terms of depression itself. So when people are in a depressive episode, you know, one of the symptoms is feeling hopeless or feeling like, like this is never going to get better. And it's actually a very common symptom that's experienced. And so it's, it's not surprising that that's something that we experience in postpartum depression too. Yeah, I think the more that I spend in this field, the more time I spend with clients and really understanding how depression shows up. Um, As like a young clinician, you know, you have your checklist of what symptoms look like and you've got your DSM and you've got all of your ideas in terms of how depression presents, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, to feel like a really novice clinician, not a fun feeling, right? And then as I work with moms day in and day out, and I've written a couple posts on this where you start to really just attune to the finer things. Like if we just persistently feel like we're failing or really feel like we can't do anything right, 
or that our family would be better off without us just because we're just a really awful mom or wife or it's not like depression comes into our lives as moms announcing itself like, oh, I'm here and I'm depression. It seeps through in our own inner talk and and self-talk and feels like a part of us, even though we don't feel like ourselves, right? Right. That's something that I really try to help people, generally speaking, across my platforms understand is that it is sneaky and it mimics our own thoughts and beliefs about ourselves, but it's depression. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or anxiety, kind of this, you know, you just feel on edge or you feel like I'm not doing things good enough or I'm, you know, not keeping up with everything and, or I need to think about this and think about that. And like you said, it kind of becomes this inner dialogue and we don't even recognize that, oh, this is not normal. Like I shouldn't, you know, be putting this kind of pressure on myself or I shouldn't be having these kinds of thoughts that, you know, just pop into my mind. So it can be hard even as, you know, mental health professionals, if you're personally experiencing it, it can be hard to recognize when it comes up. Yeah. And like within anxiety, this constant body feeling that something is wrong or like, Mm -hmm. like, and I'm doing, I did an episode on the difference between first time mom worry and postpartum anxiety. What is a mom gut instinct? And what is anxiety, right? And they're very Mm -hmm. hard to decipher. And I think postpartum, Anxiety goes largely underdiagnosed because it's a very tricky line to identify. So yeah, it's definitely a gray area because your your brain is supposed to be more on guard and you know watching out for this baby and kind of thinking of all the things that could go wrong so that you can protect against those things. But then some of us, our brains are just way better at that, and we you know go into overdrive in terms of trying to think of all the things that could go wrong or, you know, those, mm-hmm. those scary thoughts coming up too often. When we're talking about scary thoughts and anxiety, I know that's something that's really common is um, like intrusive thoughts, graphic, disturbing, intrusive thoughts that can be really troubling. And in terms of treatments for scary thoughts, um, how how would you go about that? Or what would you recommend for people, like, especially if they're quite distressing or disturbing? Yeah, I think then it's definitely a two-part approach. So I think it's for sure doing some sort of like cognitive therapy behind it. So, you know, in some ways is helping from from one side of it, but then the other side, you know, taking medication, especially when we take antidepressants at much higher doses than maybe we would for depression, we see that that helps tremendously with those type of intrusive thoughts. And for not for everyone, it doesn't necessarily make them go away, but it's that those thoughts come up and you're kind of like, oh yeah, there's that thought again. But yeah. it's not something that that makes you feel super anxious or, you know, makes you feel troubled in any way. It's kind of just like, oh yeah, there's my brain doing that thing again. Right. And this is one of the things that maybe you've got better analogies or explanations for it than I do because you live in this space. Is one of the things that I try to help clients understand is how taking a medication is going to help how they feel. And when in terms of anxiety, I know that when we're really anxious or whether it's intrusive thoughts or whether it's worries, we are tunnel vision, like blinders on, really stuck and perseverate. And we're like fused with our thoughts. And there's something about taking an anti-anxiety medication that allows our thoughts to become more bendy and flexible and, you know, just workable. 
And that's often how I talk about it in terms of adding a medication to a treatment plan or our toolbox, because if we're so fused with our thought, it's very hard to flex it. Right. Yeah. I think that's why people do so good when they do therapy and medication together. Like we've seen in research over and over again, that that is the most effective treatment for mental illness and that, you know, people get better faster and the the durability of the effect is much greater. So they are much less likely to relapse or have those symptoms come back up later on in life or, you know, something stressful comes up again or they stop one of the treatments. And I think that's because of that, because you, there is this cognitive piece and this piece of like exploring your thoughts and your emotions, but then there's also this piece that the medication brings in of being able to get you to that point and being able to kind of have that flexibility with your thoughts and, and see things that aren't just, you know, like just the anxiety thoughts. Right. Like it opens up the peripheral or like it allows us to step back and see a bigger picture. It like allows for that space that sometimes is really missing. And if we move more towards like a postpartum depression or postpartum rage, when we're either having strong reactions, really like a lot of irritability or really low mood and low energy where we can't get going. So with the rage and irritability, sometimes there is like, we're having a hard time finding the space and the breathing room to apply the skills. I'm like a medication in this situation. I think like you, you know, the skills we're trying really hard. If we just bought an inch, you know, space between what we're feeling and how we're reacting, I think that there would be so much success there. Or alternatively, on like the flip side of depression, like less irritability and range and more like low mood is this idea of having these like wrist weights and leg weights on that are like a sloth kind of trudging forward mm-hmm. sort of feeling. And we're applying our skills and we're working really hard. But if, if we're so tied down, again, that bringing in a tool like an antidepressant in that situation can just help relieve the like trudging right. that happens. Uh, I don't know. These are sort of analogies that I find I use in my individual sessions to kind of help bring some understanding to practically within our thinking and coping how like medication is helpful. Yeah, I love those analogies. Those are great. And, you know, something that I I remember an attending talking about in residency training was, you know, if you think about kind of the different parts of our brain, like we have this animal reptilian part of our brain, and then we have this more you know, well-developed and kind of artistic and and executive functioning part of our brain. And so coming at these illnesses from two different directions can kind of help with, you know, the medication being more of like the basic reptilian piece of your brain and then therapy being more of kind of this, you know, executive functioning and, and thinking about it in different perspectives. Yeah. And it's really interesting. I find that the more clients I see, the more that I'm really more easily able to say within even like a, a, an interviewer, the first kind of intake, how much space we have and how much we don't and sort of ha- like that flexibility or that rigidity. And it's just interesting. The brain is fascinating to me. And, I, and that's why we're here having this conversation. It's so interesting. I wish I could say things, but we're limited in terms of what we understand still. But it is also really exciting and reassuring to see this whole like reproductive hormones and brain chemicals take on some research now, like research taking on these topics that's empowering for women before I think about, oh, you're just pregnant, you're just PMSing, you're hormonal. And there has been a lot of minimizing of women's experiences, Mm -hmm. encouraging and empowering to see research heading down this road. 
Yeah. Or even like degrading to women or kind of, you know, oh, you're, you're a crazy woman or, you know, it's nice to kind of have this, you know, more biological explanation to why we feel certain things or why, you know, certain times of the month or certain times in our reproductive lifespan that we, we struggle with stuff. Um, And I think bringing up that biological piece, you know, of course it's not black and white in terms of this is the answer and this isn't, but bringing up that piece of, you know, hormones and neurotransmitters, I think helps women understand like, oh, this isn't all in my control. Like I can't, you know, I can't necessarily control uh, my hormone levels or, you know, the way that my neurotransmitters are acting to, you know, in regards to those hormone levels or how these neurons are working. You know, it's just not, just not something that we can, we can control. Yeah. I can't assume all responsibility, right? Like I wouldn't, I don't know, like I come back to thyroid, like I wouldn't be sitting here willing my thyroid to create whatever hormone (laughs) it needed to create or, or whatever. There is a piece that is outside of our control. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing to come to process through or come to grips with, I think. And there's a grief. Sometimes we feel like our body betrays us. I feel like that grief is really common with anything that might happen with our body that is outside of the norm, whether that's chronic illness or pain or birth not going the way that it should. Like there is a a grief and sort of a a thing to process there and that's Mm -hmm. valid. But yeah, there are also things that are outside of our control. And that's one of the things I really try and help clients to see and understand. Like our actual brain changes, like changes in pregnancy and postpartum. Mm -hmm. It's mind boggling. And we don't, not that everybody walks around day to day with that sort of information, but I'm like, (laughs) that's the kind of information I want to know. Like that feels reassuring that it's so biological and it's so mm-hmm. physical as well. Yeah. And it takes away the whole stigma of it. It's, it kind of reminds you that, oh yeah, like mental illness is the medical illness. It's not, you know, something that people just will upon themselves or, you know, they're not yeah. trying hard enough at other things. It's, you know, there's a huge biological component to it. Thank you so much for your time today. I could like geek out on all things. <laughs> brain, hormones, neurotransmitters, and whatever. I think that it's so fascinating. And and I'm sure that as more of this research continues to develop and the more we work through this field, I'd love to have you back for follow-up discussions on this. And maybe even there's a whole sort of menopause part of this too that we haven't touched on a lot. And not that I'm quite there yet, but I'm sure I will be approaching it one of these days and it'll be a, a relevant topic to me, but it's so relevant to so many. So um, we'll continue this conversation, I'm sure. That Where can people, great. yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm so happy to have you as a connection and a colleague. And oh, thank you. Yeah. Where can people find you online and how can they connect with you? Um, so I'm on Instagram as uh, the.reproductive.psychiatrist. Um, and then I my clinic has a little about me on the, the webpage, but I, I don't have like a website yet. One day when I have time, I'll, I'll get that. But my website for my clinic is rpcaustin.com. Yeah, I know that you're busy serving your clients and reproductive psychiatrists are a hard gem to find. So we appreciate the resources that you do put out there on Instagram and the thoughtful posts that you share. And so if you guys are looking for her, we'll link everything in the show notes and make sure to also check out our previous episode on uh, medications and pregnancy and postpartum as well. 
I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description. Or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.